I did some quick math and said, man, I'm going to make more money on these two uh, real estate deals when they close than I make in quarter of a year working, you know, working for the man. And so I pulled the, pulled the rip cord and bailed out at the corporation. And within a week, both of those deals went south and <laughs> welcome to real estate, right? Welcome to self-employment. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with Jim Mafuccio. Jim, are you ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. So Jim has enjoyed a long and successful career, and you may not be able to see it, but he's also been able to maintain his hair, which I'm very jealous about. <laughs> <laughs> that career has been in real estate. And he has some battle scars to prove it. Today, as founder and principal of Aspen Funds, he's drawing on his over 30 years of real estate experience in a way that many haven't discovered. Jim has become an expert on mortgage notes and is helping investors earn high yields every month without the built-in volatility of traditional investment options. Jim, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, well, you know, I, I started off, graduated in 1979 from college with an engineering degree. I went into the corporate world and uh, after about five years of that, decided I'd had enough of it. So I got my real estate license and I struck out just with a license in hand and, and started putting my first few deals together just, just as a realtor, you know, helping people buy homes and whatnot. And from that point on, I jumped into development in Southern California. And so I was doing small residential subdivisions. You know, that's going to be the, the segue when you're ready for me to go into my worst, <laughs> my best but worst real estate investment ever. And what, what um, part of Southern LA was it? Well, we were in, I was actually in Ventura County was where I was located. And so mostly in Ventura County, did some stuff in the outlying areas of Los Angeles Got as it. well. Hmm. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. So, yeah. So I remember sitting at my kitchen table in Ventura, still working for the big oil company with my, with my secure job and my salary and got my real estate license. And I started putting together deals for a couple friends. And I did some quick math and said, man, I'm going to make more money on these two uh, real estate deals when they close, then I make in quarter of a year working, you know, working for the man. And so I pulled the, pulled the rip cord and bailed out at the corporation. And within a week, both of those deals went south and <laughs> welcome to real estate, right? Welcome to self-employment. But I was out there on the water at that point and I did, I did figure out a way to get a few more deals in my pipeline and started being able to pay the bills doing transactional real estate, just helping buyers and sellers find and, and sell their homes. And uh, I hooked up with a, another gentleman in, uh, in the mid to late 1980s. And we decided, you know, he'd had some experience. And I, being a civil engineer, I said, yeah, let's do, let's do land development. Let's be developers. And so 
here we were, you know, in our uh, 30s, early 30s, and we're going to be developers. And so we, we started subdividing some land, and we did our first four-home project, and we hit the 1998-89 cycle, 88-89 cycle, right? And the, the prices were going up, and we didn't really manage our costs that well, but because the market was doing so well, timing's everything, right? And the, they say location's everything. I say timing. Location's important, but if you have the timing wrong, I don't care where you are. But we ended up doing really well with that first project. And of course, we went out and leveraged and, and acquired a bunch of other land. And uh, we were up and running, but we weren't reading the newspapers and we wouldn't have known what to do with them. And we didn't really understand what the SNL crisis was all about. And uh, of course, that's something in the history books now. But we had leveraged out and bought all this land. And and the problem with being a developer in Southern California is, and a lot of other areas as well, is if the market's going up, it's usually going up pretty rapidly. The converse of that is also true. When it turns a corner and comes down, there's nothing smooth and level about the way the markets turn in the coastal areas. There's a lot of speculation. The problem is when you endeavor to do a development project, it takes a long time to get your approvals and you don't have any control of that timeline. So you're working on a project, you're raising all the money, pulling the land together, putting all the pieces together, designing it, hiring architects, land planners, and you're really building to this crescendo where you know, you're going to lift the curtain and present your product to a market that you don't even know if it'll exist by the time your product is ready. And so in essence, that's what happened to us. We had to redesign the project to be an affordable housing situation. That was in the early, early 1990s. We broke ground on our project in 1994. And, you know, the financial markets were in, there was a recession that we just come out of and it was terrible timing for us. And so we had this beautiful, wonderful little development of homes that we actually won a gold nugget award for. I call it my most successful failure ever because we actually went and had a design theme to these homes. It was the old Craftsman, Pasadena bungalow, Craftsman style home. Mm. We had everything from Hollywood location scouts to land planners and architects coming to our little project in this semi-rural town in, in Ventura County and photographing and interviewing us. And all the while, you know, we're watching the ship go down because the other production builders that had much deeper pockets than us were able to come in and slash their prices by, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a house. And we couldn't make money at that. So at the end of the day, 1996 or so, we ended up closing up shop. I was actually, I actually demoted myself to be the sales agent to try to put bread, you know, bread on the table for my family. And so I was I was back to being a real estate agent in my own my own homes that I'd built. At the end of the day, we ended up losing the tail end of that project. And so it was a complete wipeout for me. I lost everything, lost investors' money, lost a lot of time, started developing this crop of, uh, at the time it was brown hair, but it started its color turn at that point in time. <laughs> but, but it was a difficult time, lost some uh, friendships along the way and, uh, you know, did my best to try to keep things moving forward, but the numbers were just against us. And so, again, timing was everything in this case and the financial markets really were what controlled my success or failure, not our product. Our product was fantastic, and we actually did control our costs very well. But again, the big curve, which dominated all the other little curves, was the economy was going in the tank, and it was, it was a mortgage-related crisis. And so 
really, I, I didn't, I didn't get enough of that lesson. So I retooled myself and in about 1999, got back involved in development. I figured, okay, I, you know, I'm going to jump back in that ring and try to fight that battle again. But I was going to aim at affordable housing. Well, affordable is a relative term in uh, coastal California. We ended up getting just, I mean, we were, we were leveraged out again, had tons of land, had projects going in Southern California. And then the subprime crisis hit in 2008. And it was like, okay, I guess you didn't get the lesson the first time. So let's try this again. And uh, I mean, went through the same crisis only twice as deep. This time I had five teenagers living under roof and uh, lost everything plus some and found myself in 2009 literally bankrupt. And um, we had moved to the Midwest at that point in time in Kansas City and literally in my mid 50s, starting over from scratch with five teenagers under roof. And uh, that's when uh, I started the retooling, which resulted in Aspen Funds, which is now, we've now got a seven year success track record. And I think we're very well risk averse. And uh, let me just say this, you know, people talk about the best way to learn is from your mistakes. I'm going to correct that. I'm going to tell you, that's the second best way to learn. The first best way to learn is from my mistakes. <laughs> right now. Yeah. So if most people won't do it because we're kind of stubborn and we have to do things ourselves, but I was always going after the home runs. And mm. so these development projects, when they're successful, you make, you don't make six figures, you make seven figures. And I've done right. that a couple of times. And, mm. you know, but then when, when things swing the other way, you lose all those figures just as faster than, than you earned them. So uh, well, that would be know, my uh, lesson. I want to ask you a question about when you were at that low point in 2008, as you described with kids and your family and you're losing everything, you know, what was it that helps you to get through that? Because it's got to be, you know, brutal emotionally when you're trying to keep a brave face, you know, for your kids or for your wife, for your employees or other people involved. But inside, you know, you're being torn up. And think about, we have listeners right now who are in that situation. I'm just curious, right. like, tell us a bit about how that felt and what helped you to get through that. Right. Well, I'm just going to, it's my story, so I just have to be 100% honest with you. My faith in God is what got me through it. It's a very real thing to me. Mm. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean, that doesn't exempt me from my part in the equation and the things that I have to do regarding diligence and regarding, you know, learning and getting educated and, you know, applying the experience and the wisdom gained through the years. And so I had a lot of real estate smarts. And so I think what it really comes down to is taking a look at when you're emptied out and you have seemingly have nothing left. I will say this, you always have something. So the question is, what is in your hand? What do you have in your hand that you can that you can begin to leverage and build on today? And you know, I had gray hair, experience, I understood real estate, and I did have confidence because I, I was able to clearly see, you know, why the failure took place. And and I think you have to be able to detach yourself from taking it personally. My identity is not in, you know, what my bank account looks like at any given time. Again, at the very core of it, for me, it's my faith. It's who I am in my relationship with God. But moving out a layer from that, it's 
look, I know I understand some things about real estate. I know I'm a go-getter. I know that if you take action and persist in a decent direction for long enough, you're going to break through at some point and you're going to begin to see the fruit of your labor. I just believe it's designed to work that way for us. Now, if you launch off on a cockeyed idea that you haven't gotten counsel from others, you haven't done your homework. I mean, some ideas are just bad ideas from the beginning and you can persist all you want in a bad idea and in bad timing. And I'm sorry, it's, it's not going to work, but when you have people around you that you can talk to and, and get mentoring from and get counsel from and make a good choice on what voyage you're going you're gonna to set out to take, and then you just keep paddling in the same direction and improving your skills. And, you know, things really do give way to the persistent. I mm. think that's probably what gets developed through the difficult times is persistence, you believe. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because one of the things about when you're in a – kind of crazy difficult situation financially in business in life is that we tend to hold on tighter work harder you know push ourselves you know and we're, we're really tense and I I just think that you know you think about the idea of holding on to something and I like one saying that I heard many years ago when I was young which was let go and let God and you know if you have faith in God or any other type of faith that you could replace with God in that case, let's say. But the idea is that there's a bigger plan. This isn't the end of, you know, your life, you know, and that you can let go at some point and you're going to be okay. Particularly if you've built, you know, trusting relationships and all that. But I think that when people hold on so tight and they just are terrified to let go and let go could just mean, sitting down with someone you trust and really telling them the whole story. Absolutely. Let, you know, those types of things. And I think, you know, in 1997, we had the financial crisis in Asia and I was at the heart of it. I had been in Thailand for five years and we had actually even started a factory in Thailand for my coffee business with my best friend, Dale. Mm-hmm. And we lost everything and we had to go into the factory and we moved in the factory and we eventually made it, the company survive. But the point is, is that the emotional pain of, of loss and losing, you know, people were jumping off of buildings. You yep. know, it is very real. And I think I like one other thing that you mentioned, which is the idea is that my bank account is not my identity. And I think that's also something that's critical. Maybe if we could just go through, like, what are the main lessons that you took away from this? And then I'm going to add in some of my thoughts after that, and we can have a further discussion. Right. Well, so first of all, in the real estate world, and that's kind of been my world. So, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm speaking to the right, right audience here. But, uh, you know, from the beginning of my entrepreneurial voyage, it's, I've always seen real estate as, as a road to wealth. There's many roads to wealth within real estate. Again, I tried to go for the home runs. Let's do a development project, hit the timing right, make millions, and then roll it in and do it again. And, you know, for me, that just didn't work because of the reasons I already discussed. But I saw that in, in that, the, the financial element, the financing and the economics of real estate, you know, we are focused now, when I say we, my company, I'm a co-founder mm. of Aspen Funds, we are focused now on what actually is, you know, and we're in residential real estate, so what is this piece of property? What are the real economics to it? And, you know, we're, we're dealing with most of our 
underlying assets, our collateral real estate properties are in the Midwest, they're in the heartland. We have some on the coast, but, but uh, you know, in most parts of the country, you can value a piece of real estate by its use. And so it's a housing unit. It's where somebody can live. It's, it's where a third of their income, let's say it's the expense item on their budget where a third of their income is gonna cover that. And, and if they have discretionary capital or income, you know, available to them, then they can buy, they can buy something a little more luxurious where it's not just based on the economic value. But we're, I look at real estate now in terms of, I look at a single family home and let's say the mortgage payment on it is everything included, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance is $700 a month. But in today's world, in that particular area, that property will rent for $1,100 a month. Well, to me, that's kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't mean that there may not be a disruption in the cash flow at some point. It doesn't mean that things will have to get fixed on the house, but that it's real estate. That piece of property will always, as long as we keep, keep it operable, it'll always provide shelter for somebody. And in general, rents, rents don't go down. There are some dynamics that can cause rents to settle back at some level, but for the most part, you know, rents are going to keep up with inflation at least. And if you, then if you add the smart element to it and you buy in markets where, you know, there's jobs being created in a diversified economy, not just jobs in one sector, but you have a multifaceted economy and a quality of living where, where the politics are good and it's business friendly. So you have families and companies wanting to move there. You look at all this put together and say, that's my collateral that's what undergirds my investment, not is the international capital flowing over to the coast to buy million dollar properties and bid them up to $2 million because it's funny money to them, but it's bread and butter housing. So it's a much more conservative approach. It's not nearly as exciting in terms of making a million dollars overnight, but the way you can scale and the way you can see the big dollars, if that's what you're after in this business, is you can then realize that there's a massive ocean of passive investment capital out there that's dying to find entrepreneurs like myself or like many of your listeners, Andrew, that have a good idea and that have a sound idea and they're dying for yield on their investment. They're looking for something to do. They don't trust Wall Street anymore and they're tired of the drawdowns or they invest in the stock market. Okay, it's been great here lately, but it's just a matter of time. It always corrects. And it's controlled by uh, dynamics that are outside of the understanding and the grasp of most investors. So that's why I love real estate. And that's why I love the steady plotting and then build a scalable operation rather than try to swing for the fences and, and do a deal. I don't want to just do deals anymore. Right. You know, so we, we have a company, we have an ongoing business model that now we're in the funnest time because it's just, we're just scaling and building it and growing it. And we, again, I started with zero. Mm. I started with less than As zero. we've learned. As we've learned. Well, that's uh, fantastic. Let me uh, maybe share a few things that I take away from it. The first one, I, I really love this discussion about timing versus, you know, how people, we always say location, location, location. And, you know, it's just nearly impossible to overcome bad timing. It takes, it can take, to overcome bad timing, you really probably need three things. You need capital, you need time, 
because it's going to take time to overcome it. And then number three is you're going to need an iron will to make it through it. And well, that's a hell of a lot to put into something, you know? And so timing and the, the hardest part too, is that how do you know when's the right time? You know, thinking about my own business, when we started, I had come to Thailand in 92, the economy was booming. It seemed to make a lot of sense to set up a coffee business but people weren't really drinking that much coffee in Thailand at that time, number one. But there was like this storm that was far away. We didn't see it. And I, I was young. I didn't, I didn't see it. <laughs> and so it's like, that's the hardest thing is that timing is so critical. But many times when people get excited about an idea or maybe they're not experienced, they just don't, they don't see this in the perspective of the bigger picture. And I really think that to me, this is kind of the, the number one takeaway from this is how can we help, you know, people who are going into investments and ideas and that they, they're not aware of the timing. And I'm just, I have a lot of other things that I've written down, but I've actually feel like, like that's kind of the core of your story. Yeah. And I'm just curious, maybe. I'm going to ask you the next question, which is about, you know, based on what you've learned from this and what you continue to learn, what one action would you take, you know, recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I think a discussion about timing is probably pretty valuable in this case. Yeah. So again, we have moved into a model where the timing, we got into it because of a timing element. And let me explain. So we buy we started our business and I started it in, in 2011 and then I, a partner and I got together in 2012 and he's helped me build and scale this business. He's, he's a very successful financial guy and, and he's good at scaling business. And so we've been doing this together since that time frame. but we've got a model that we came into because there was a whole lot of after the crisis or when the crisis hit the mortgage crisis, there was all of these defaulted mortgages out there and just to super simplify it, we're able to raise capital from private investors and go in and buy portfolios of these, of these more defaulted mortgages. In some cases, they haven't seen a payment in 10 years, literally. And so the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we figured out a way to, we put together a team with banking, former banking executives and professionals to contact these people and do workouts with them. So we become the bank. We're buying the paper. We're not buying the property. The property is the collateral that undergirds and supports the value of our investment. But we're buying, really we're buying what would be considered the banks or the lender's trash. And we're turning it into treasure by working things out with the borrowers. We're able to eliminate a lot of their debt. We're able to put them into an affordable structure. And in just very general terms, the average mortgage that we buy, and we buy second mortgages, it's a whole other story there. Mm where the first mortgage is performing. So we have this leverage aspect of it, but we're buying these second mortgages at an average of 15 to 20% of what the balance owed is. And when we get these re-performing and get a payment stream coming from the borrower, we average about two and a half to three times what we paid for that loan. It becomes worth that much. So if we pay $15,000 for a $100,000 loan, we end up with an asset that we can sell for forty-five to fifty thousand dollars as a performing asset because it now has cash flow coming in. And again, we don't deal with tenants, trash, mm. toilets. We just receive payments in the mail or via ACH. And when one of these loans breaks, 
we go to work on fixing it again. So uh, we're able to cover a lot of territory with that. So and to, the to timing, make... the, re the reason I bring that up is yep. go ahead. We, came, we came into this business based on a timed, you know, a crash, a really big time correction in the mortgage business. But the more I've been in this, I realize it really doesn't depend on timing because there's always been a market for mortgages. And you just, you know, we may not make the same multipliers when we're buying mortgages today as we, as we were six or seven years ago. But the fact of the matter is, you know, because the mortgages we're buying are, are undergirded by bread and butter properties, which gets me back to what I said before, these are not speculative properties. These are not fix and flip loans where if the business on the other side sees that, man, I can't make a profit by, by fixing up and selling this house anymore. I'm going to walk away from it and hand over the keys or make you foreclose. We're talking about, you know, bread and butter housing where the only way these loans go into default is if people lose their job. And that happens, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're not going to walk away because suddenly they don't have as much equity or because their equity is negative. They got their kids going to school in the school district. They've gotten to know their neighbors. It's home sweet home. That's what really protects us. Plus, again, we're not in the highly speculative coastal markets. We're by and large through the heartland of the U.S. with a smattering of properties and loans on the, on the coasts as well. That's why the time, that's why I'm so excited about this because right now the foreclosure rate is down to, you know, as low as it's ever been. It's, things are going really well on that end, but we're still finding deals and making really good money and helping mm -hmm. a lot of people. We're actually scaling our business. We're growing faster now than we were in 2011, 2012, and 2013. So again, if you get into the right part of the real estate world, your timing doesn't have to be perfect. And so when the next recession hits, and I'm, I'm not hoping for a recession for anybody's sake, but when the next recession hits, it'll just create a whole lot more opportunity for us. But we've learned to operate this business model in a very steady state when things are not in chaos. And so I would advise people, look for a long-term play, a long-term model that makes sense. Look, the people that are making aluminum foil, and I just pulled that out of the air. I don't even mm -hmm. know why I said that. You know, there's no timing the market on aluminum foil. We keep using it. It's just, it's somebody's made, Reynolds is making money doing it, and they've been for 60, 70, I don't know, 80 years. You know, what's the secret? Well, they've learned a process. They've learned how to make a margin, and they just keep cranking it out. So mm. I've become very much a non-speculator in my, in my later years. Got it. So try to study the industry and try to focus also on a part of the industry where timing is less of an issue. Exactly. One last thing about just so I understand what you do. I mean, I presume that at some point you're going to negotiate with the bank to get that 15 you know, cents on the dollar type of price for that mortgage. And I suspect that you have a couple of things going for you that if the bank was willing to give that type of a discount for that mortgage, you know, theoretically, the owner should try to get that, but they don't have the knowledge that that's what's possible. They don't have that relationship and they may not also have the capital to really even make it work. Is that, how do I understand that aspect of yeah. the business? Yeah, that you've, you've really hit it, you know, and, and again, particularly because we're in the niche of junior liens and second mortgages, they're treated and handled completely differently by the institutions that created them. Mm 
in, if there's 90 days without a payment, they charge them off. They are required. There's regulations that tell them what they can and can't do with those loans. Mm. Most of them will never see the light of day. They charge them off and they put them in a vault somewhere. And so we've found this niche where it's not really a negotiation. It's really just a question of if the institutions are willing to sell them and part with them, they're already at zero value on their books. So, you know, what we buy them for is kind of immaterial. Probably a more relevant topic would be, you know, for the senior mortgages, the first liens, there is a, there is a pretty well-established secondary market there. The discounts aren't as large. Mm. There's still great money to be made in that game. And why don't the banks work it out directly with the homeowners? Great question. A lot of them do. There have been a lot of loan modification programs, but the sheer volume of that paper that came through as a result of the crisis, you know, so many of these institutions just went out of business. And so you'd have another bank that would come and take over and buy out the assets and they wouldn't value that, that defaulted paper very highly at all. So they, they would spin that off to large hedge funds and then the hedge funds would package it up and sell it off to the, you know, smaller guys like us, because that's where we started in this thing. Mm. And so the institutions didn't have the time, the manpower, the skill set, frankly, and then even from a regulatory standpoint, they're just tripping over themselves trying to figure out how to make things work. We're entrepreneurs, so we can get on the phone with a borrower and say, hey, let's take a look at what happened to you. Let's look at your finances. Let's craft a payment scheme that works for you. And it's not the back and forth six month long process. It's, right. We've been able to do things that, that you know, an institution wouldn't do. And we've kept people in their homes by doing that. So it's the opportunity of entrepreneurial opportunity element. And it's, it's, that's what makes it fun. You know, we're doing something that others can't do. So Well, fellow risk takers out there. Yeah. This is a great, you know, lesson on grabbing a particular niche and making something of it. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? For the next 12 months, actually, and I'll, and I'll just focus this in on, uh, on the business itself because we're at a place where now we've got a pretty good team going and uh, we, have just passed, we have just passed the timeline where we're not just in this for the opportunistic you know, there was a big glut of these, of these defaulted mortgages. We're actually in the space now. We have enough of a footprint that uh, we're going to be in this thing for as long as it exists. And so scale, the next 12 months is we're revising our systems and processes and uh, making a few staff changes where we're reorienting, just fine-tuning the machinery so that it can grow. We want to, you know, we're going to triple in size over the next 12 months and we've tripled in size over the last 18 months. So the next 12 months is the scale, scale, scale. And I want to do less. I want to be less involved in the wheelhouse and more involved in the management and the, and the helping the people on our team become the best that they can be. So that's it. Well, that sounds like a great 12 months ahead and even better at the end of the 12 months. <laughs> All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Jim, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you for being one of the brave souls out there that's willing to share their worst investment ever and take that worst investment and now turn it into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, you know, just, just keep going, man. Just find the, find the thing you wanna do. Find something that really makes you resonate on the inside 
and get some good counsel around you and then just apply the energy to it and you will break through. You'll find your breakthrough. Hopefully before you hit 60 years old. Right on. All right. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.